Let's go ahead and pray together. I know you've been praying. You keep praying, but I'll speak on our behalf. Lord, thank you for all that you've been doing already this week. So we reach roughly the halfway point. Uh, we're grateful for what you've done, what you've taught us. Uh, thank you for tonight, the singing, uh, the, the skit that reminded us of the power of Jesus' death, our part in it, and, and yet the benefit we get from it. Uh, thank you for the time of prayer. Hundreds of us have asked you to speak to us tonight. Lord, I ask you to help me, and I ask you to help those who hear. And uh, Lord, we know from the parable of Jesus that when the pure seed of the word goes out, the devil wants to snatch it away. And he wants to distract us with the cares of this world, or he wants us to get excited about it for a short time and then forget it. But Lord, don't let that happen. I pray that tonight seed would fall on tender soil and that it would be ready to bring forth fruit. I pray that you will work in lives, uh, not just for a short time, but I pray that you'll change lives the way you change the life of the Samaritan woman. And uh, tonight we come to you as a bunch of Samaritan women. We're a mess. Uh, you love us and you don't condemn us because you were condemned in our place. We're amazed. Now teach us some more, grow us, Anyone who's yet without Christ, draw them to salvation. And I pray that Christians will mature. And again, I pray, Lord, send laborers from this group to give you a lifetime of service, maybe here in Iowa or neighboring states, but Lord, maybe uh, as pastors or as missionaries, maybe uh, people from this room will be on every continent of the world proclaiming the gospel of Christ. That's your business. Do your work, call laborers, and we'll give you the glory. So meet with us tonight, teach us, help us, in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. I've been mentioning each night that I now represent um, the Lord, but I represent biblical ministries worldwide and uh, continue to have good conversations with people about how God might use them in missions. I would encourage you between the time you graduate and start college, consider if the Lord would allow you to get on a mission field somewhere, you know, do a summer internship, uh, go with a church group or go with a college group or uh, go to your pastor and say, pastor, I would love to go help one of our missionaries for a few weeks, but try to get on a field and just experience what God is doing. And maybe the Lord will kind of make you feel like, wow, that's what you're supposed to do. Um, I want to get to the text tonight, but let me, let me make just a quick comment based on a conversation I had last night. I started out the first night saying, I am a Samaritan woman. Uh, all of us are Samaritan women. We're all a mess. Had a conversation last night, and I'm not going to give the other person's side of the conversation. That wouldn't be fair or appropriate. But there was a point at which I was kind of sharing what the Lord has brought me through. And um, as I did, the guy I was talking to said, you, you know, I didn't expect that. When somebody is a preacher, a pastor, you know, writing books, writing hymns, whatever, I just kind of figured you've just always walked with God and it's kind of been a pretty straight road for you. And um, I'm just telling you, I'm a Samaritan woman. And I tell you this just, just for you to experience the grace of God. Um, God uses jacked up people. And, um, you know, I look back at my teen years, Christian family, heard a lot of Bible, but I was... I was trying, you know, marijuana, I was drinking, I was with girls. God was very merciful to me. 
Eventually, though, even when I went to a Christian college to train for the ministry, I got expelled. I got kicked out of a Christian college. Uh, I won't say which Christian college, but it's in South Carolina, and its initials are BJU. And um, I got shipped. I'm that guy. God is so merciful. He's so gracious. He's so forgiving. He's so patient. When I say he loves us in spite of us, and he uses us in spite of us, I'm telling you, that's what he does. So I just want to say that tonight, because some of you, you're kind of like, man, I've made some big mistakes, or, or maybe not public mistakes, but maybe private mistakes. And, you know, could God really use me? God delights to use broken things, and then all the glory goes to him. So be encouraged that, um, that the Lord is more gracious than you are sinful. Our sins, they are many. Finish it. His mercy, his mercy is more. And he has plans for you. And uh, this could be a, a life-changing week for you. That's why I've been praying. I'm going to mention just uh, one more time. There are resources in the back. And uh, I've gotten help from someone. She's a professional. Uh, she works in a grocery store during the year. She works at the, uh, the, what do we call our store here? The gift store. Because there's, I was going to say bookstore, but there's not a lot of books. The gift store. Where, where is Sarah? Sarah, will you stand up where you're at? She's going to hate this, but Sarah, where are you at? Sarah is, Sarah's back there. Sarah is helping me so I don't have to be messing with filthy lucre. Everybody give Sarah a hand. Way to go, way to go. Now just know, I don't want to take all that stuff back to Atlanta. So whatever she doesn't sell, she has to buy. So pray for Sarah and give her a hand if you can. John chapter 4, let's get to it. Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. So far, we've had two of five messages. Jesus uh, seeks sinners. Last night, Jesus saved sinners. We started in John 4 and then kind of departed to 1 Peter. Jesus saved sinners. And I guess that's really the heart of the message. If you're going to remember one thing, remember last night's message about what Christ has done to bear our sins. But I feel like an infomercial, but wait, there's more. And there's a lot of passage left. God is uh, still teaching us things. And I want to start tonight with a quote from John Piper. John Piper pastored in Minnesota. He's been an influential writer. And uh, there's a book he has called God is the Gospel. It's not a long book, but it's a powerful book. I would recommend that to you. And then he has another one. I mean, he has a bunch um, he writes like a book a day. It's kind of ridiculous. But he has a book that's great for teenagers called Don't Waste Your Life. And uh, it would be worth a read. Just, hey, don't waste your life. Don't game your life away. Don't scroll your life away. But God is the gospel. I'm going to tell you the background of this book and why it's so influential for me. I had pastored in Ohio for seven years, church planter. Church was growing. And the Lord allowed us to add an assistant pastor so he came on staff, and the first few months he was there, you know, I'm trying to kind of show him the ropes. I'm still a young guy. He's a young guy. Well, there's a funeral, and um, I, love, I love doing funerals. That might sound dark, but funerals are a great gospel opportunity. Uh, my dad would say he'd rather do a funeral than a wedding because you know the person's going to stay dead. And, um, you know, that, think about it, it's funny, kind of. So, and at weddings, people are just kind of, you know, they're, they're not very thoughtful. At funerals, people are thoughtful. So I preached the gospel, told people they, you know, they were going to die, and where, where would their soul be, heaven or hell? 
And then afterwards, I talked to the guy, Joe Tierpak, and we pastored together, and I said, you know, do you have any questions about how to do funerals? I was kind of like, you know, kind of killed it. So any, anything, any comments? And uh, he made a comment, and it wasn't very positive. And, you know, he tiptoed about it a little bit, but he said, well, I feel like when you gave the gospel, you kept telling people how to get to heaven. So the main emphasis of the gospel is to get people to heaven, but not necessarily to get them to God. And, you know, I, you know what I said was, uh, uh, I had nothing. You know, I had to think about that. And he gave me this book called God is the Gospel. I'm going to quote a couple things from this. It says, God is the final and highest good that makes the good news of the gospel good. Until people use the gospel to get to God, they use it wrongly. We're not just telling people how to get out of hell and how to get to heaven. We're telling people that they can be reconciled to God, that they can have peace with God. And certainly the Bible tells us that the gospel will get us out of hell and into heaven. But God is even better than that. It says, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. Think about this illustration. Many of you have probably heard or used uh, the bridge illustration. You know, we're lost and dead, and there's a chasm, there's hell in the middle of it, and we want to get to heaven, and we can't get across, we can't jump across, we can't make our own way. So Jesus died on the cross to give us a way to heaven. Okay, but the, the problem with that idea, there's truth to it, but it makes Jesus a means to an end. You know, Jesus is just the one we walk over, but what we really want is heaven. And what Piper says in his book is, you know, if God weren't in heaven, but you had streets of gold and all you could eat buffet, would you love heaven? What makes heaven heaven is God. What makes salvation awesome is not heaven, but God. So you were exiled from God. Now you're brought near to God. You're, you're a friend of God. No, you're a child of God. The gospel brings you to God. Remember last night we studied at length 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And that was the focus last night. But the last part says that he might bring us to God. So the prize of the gospel isn't primarily heaven. It's a relationship with God. And that will lead us into the message we have tonight. It's the third. It is that Jesus satisfies sinners, seeks us, and he saves us. But this passage is so unique because it describes how Jesus satisfies us. He satisfies our souls. So John 4. Let's begin reading in verse 7, and let's stand together, please. John 4, 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, 
Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, I've always thought of that as, you know, she's interested. She's taking him up on the offer. She doesn't quite get it. She's still thinking physical water, not spiritual. Uh, Tim Jones today made a comment. He says, do you think maybe she's asking that I won't have to come here to draw water? I, I won't have awkward encounters with people. I won't be so ashamed. And, and her life was so distressing. A lot happening there. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, in answer, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is technically true, is the idea. This is the word of God. Let's study it. Be seated, please. Each night on the slides, I have had a picture full of water. It's obviously a modern pitcher, glass pitcher. But tonight we're going to kind of focus on that water and what it is. Like, what's in the pitcher? We know that Jesus is talking, he, he's moving from physical water to spiritual water. And she, she misses it at first. That happens all the time. Okay, John 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. So he moves from physical birth to spiritual birth, and Nicodemus misses it. And he says, how can I enter again into my mother's womb? Ooh, you know, awkward. He missed it. Later, we're going to have in, in John 6, Jesus said, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. And everybody who heard him went, ooh. You know, and, and they missed it again. In John 2, he said, destroy this temple. I'll, rise it, I'll raise it up in three days. And they're thinking of the temple. Jesus was talking about his body. Everybody just keeps missing his illustrations. But what does he mean when he offers this woman a soul-satisfying drink? It's a commentator named G. Campbell Morgan. He preached in England, late 1800s. He makes a comedy. He says, Give me this water that I thirst not was the sigh the sob of a discontented, disappointed, thirsty woman. So I like to spend an entire week in one chapter, just kind of keep digging deeper, keep looking harder. We might pass by this, but what he says about her, a sigh, even more than a sigh, a, a sob, She's discontented, she's disappointed, she's broken, she's thirsty. I said the first night, this is one of the most pathetic, pitiful characters in all of the Bible. And instead of looking down on her, 
instead of maybe mocking her tonight, I want to empathize with her. And I think, I think we're going to understand her better by the end of the night. And I hope the Lord will use it in our lives as well, because we're all Samaritan women. Ask you a question. How did Jesus see the woman at the well? Like, like what was his estimation of her? When he saw her, and we've already established, she's an outcast among outcasts, a social pariah. She has a bad history. She's from the other side of the tracks. She's of a hated ethnicity. You know, she's the lowest of the low. Did Jesus look at her and, you know, wrinkle his nose like he was smelling something bad? You know, did he look at her and, and have a sense of disgust? You know, why, why bother with, with that? Well, I think the questions that Jesus poses to her, the offer he makes to her, tells us a lot about how he saw her. I'm going to start a sentence and say, were I Jesus, and, you know, don't, don't stone me yet. That's a blasphemous way to talk. You know, were I Jesus. I'm not. You should be glad. But were I Jesus... If I were going to use water and move from physical water to spiritual water, what would be the natural way to apply the water to this lady's situation? If I were Jesus, and you know, how many times do we see water in the scriptures and it's symbolized in a different way? Water is often used as a symbol of what? Of cleansing of washing. If I were Jesus, I would have said to this woman, if you knew who I am, you would ask me, and I would use this water, the, the water of life I have, I could wash off your stink because you are morally filthy. You're, you're gross. Ugh. But I have water that would cleanse you, not just your body, it would cleanse your soul. I would have thought of her as somebody dirty, and I, I would have offered her cleansing. We had a funny talk uh, with several of the staff members the other night about being in college, and there are roommates that just wouldn't shower. And I was an RA. I had to kind of, I had to watch over and, and kind of be a big brother to a number of guys on a hall. And there was a guy, you'd walk in his room, I, I can still smell it. There was just this sour, ugh. And the guy just didn't shower. He didn't change his clothes. He didn't change his sheets. And you would just walk in and just smell this, ugh. And his roommates are dying. And they're coming to me. And eventually my boss came to me and said, Chris, you got to talk to this guy. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to find a creative way to do that. You know, I'm trying not to say, hey, man, you stink. So I said, man, you look stressed. When I'm stressed, nothing is more relaxing than a nice, hot shower with lots of soap. You just wash your stress away. It didn't work. It didn't work. And eventually I just had to tell the guy, you know, the, the school is telling you, you, you've got to get on a normal, you know, hygiene regimen for your roommate's sake, for the hallway's sake, for your own respect and testimony. And it, it was awkward. I would have told this sinful woman she could be washed and, and she was. She was forgiven of her filthy sin. We talked about it last night. But that's not Jesus' 
emphasis. It would have been natural, even expected, for Jesus to use the water as a symbol of cleansing, but Jesus offered to quench her thirst, not cleanse her filth. That is huge. He didn't see her as vile. He saw her as needy. What he saw didn't make him angry. It made him sad for her. He wasn't moved to disgust, but to compassion. Yes, she's a sinner, but when he saw her, he saw someone who was heartbroken and needy and thirsty and desperate. And Jesus loved her and he said, I can meet that need. And in fact, that need of her heart is probably what led her to all of the sin because she was trying to meet that need in her heart in an ungodly way. What mercy he had on her. It should change the way we view people. You know, I, I said, how did Jesus see her? And most of the time I'm emphasizing that you're like the Samaritan woman. But for a moment, take the example of Jesus. How should we see people? You know, we see people that are lashing out. We see people that are rebellious. You walk into a store, you see a guy with crazy hair or a girl with a shaved head or, you know, just piercings all over or tattoos all over or, you know, they're, they're just lashing out. And it's easy to see them, be afraid of them, ridicule them, mock them, avoid them. But if Jesus were to speak to them, he'd probably say, and you are so thirsty inside. And, and you're trying to find something to make your life make sense. The whole world is thirsty. They're all Samaritan women. Not everyone is getting married five times, but there are people that may, maybe they're so arrogant. And I'm telling you, the most arrogant people you know are really the most insecure people you know, and they're trying to overcompensate and convince themselves that they're awesome because they feel so small. Or it might be somebody that's very immoral and you say, oh, that girl, you know, that girl is so slutty. Sorry, hope it's not a bad word. But you say, oh, she's such, you know, she's such a bad person. Yeah, but, but what's going on in her head, in her heart? What's going on in her family? You know, there's, there's people in school that are, are such a wreck. They're doing drugs. or And we look and we're so judgy. We're so self-righteous and we don't look at them with the eyes of Jesus and say, you know what? That person is broken and what they really deeply need is Jesus. Look at people that they sin differently than we do. It might be homosexuality. It might be genuine confusion about gender and it's so easy to mock and I'm going to be clear, the Bible says God made men and women. It's absolute. It's not, you know, it's not a scale. God made you perfectly the way he wants you to be. But when somebody is struggling with that, as a result of living in such a crazy world that's feeding them so much misinformation, has it occurred to you that the person that's dealing with that is actually really thirsty and broken and needy and looking for answers and not finding answers. And instead of saying, that's ridiculous, we should say, actually, if you knew who Jesus was, 
you would get to know him and, and he could meet your need. Look at this lady. Don't scowl. You know, don't think of her as filthy, slutty, disease-ridden. I want you to think about something. What did this woman want? I guess the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us. But what, was, what, what did she want? You know, what we know about her, she'd been married, divorced five times, living with somebody else. What did she want? Somebody tell me. She wanted to be loved. If, if we see her primarily as lustful or easy, we misjudge her. If we see her as fickle, well, she marries somebody, she changes her mind. She marries somebody, she changes her mind. Do you remember we established women were so undervalued, so mistreated. A woman in that society did not willy-nilly divorce her husband. So she's not just somebody that you know keeps changing her mind, like somebody you would see in tabloids. What did she really want? What was she thirsty for? She wanted what most of us want, and that is she thought she would find satisfaction when she met the right guy. When she fell in love, when she got married, maybe she wants a family. You know, maybe, maybe it's a little bit of conjecture, but when Jesus speaks to her, he says, what you've been trying again and again and again and again and again and again reveals how thirsty you are. Now, I, I don't want to be sexist when I say this, okay? Because I, I think all people are this way. You know, men are this way. Guys want to fight in the right girl. They want to have a family. But I have four daughters. And getting married was like a big deal to them when they were five. My daughter was a flower girl in a wedding. And uh, the the bride and her family chose this ridiculously expensive dress. So I have like a five-year-old girl wearing a dress that costs $500. As she's walking down the aisle, I'm like, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, 150 bucks? Brutal. But she played with it for years, and then the other girls would play with it, and they would play wedding, and you know, they're just kind of looking forward to that day. I remember we're watching um, The Sound of Music, and when Maria gets married, my girls were like, this is it, this is it, this is it. Look, 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 look. There she is. Look at her dress. Ah! Rewind. This woman is not gross. She's a normal Samaritan little girl who wants to meet Mr. Right Samaritan have a family, and one day she does meet the guy. And she thinks, if I only had a guy, if I only got married, then my life will begin. 
to use Tangled's analogy. You know, my life can start. This is what I've been waiting for. She meets him, she marries him, and she thinks finally the empty spot in her soul is going to be filled. And it's not. And then that guy that was supposed to be the meaning of life gets tired of her, divorces her, and kicks her to the curb. I'm done with you. We're divorced. She's so disappointed. Maybe it was just the wrong guy. Let's try again. She gets married again, and she's still not satisfied. And then she gets rejected again, and she's broken and sad. And another guy comes, and she says, let's try again. Maybe this is the one. And she's kicked to the curb again, and a fourth time, and a fifth time. She's not a slut. She's just a normal person who is heartbroken. And finally, a guy number six, or seven or eight, we don't know, but guy number six comes and he says, you know, you're used, you're damaged. I'm not marrying you, but you can move in. All right. Maybe this time. Maybe this time. This is a sad woman. Jesus looks at her. He doesn't say, I'll wash off your filth, your stink. He says, you are so thirsty. And you're trying to quench your thirst with the wrong things. Not terrible things. I mean, pretty noble things. But they'll never satisfy you. And Jesus, in his mercy, comes. And yes, he he forgives her sin, but he, he goes even deeper to the needs of her soul. She's actually like all of us. Famous theologians once recorded a song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Jesus says in verse 14, whoever drinks of this water will be thirsty again. He's talking about the water in the well, but... Figuratively, we might say, whoever gets married will be thirsty again. Most people in this room are single. Some of you are going to be single for a long time. (laughs) You need to get out of your head that that's a problem to solve. Truly. As a dad. That's not a problem to solve. It doesn't mean you're inferior or broken. Some of you, God might have you be single so you can do some awesome things and and take chances on the mission field. Paul says it's actually a gift to be single and a little bit more carefree and just go hard and take risks for gospel advance. Being single is not broken. And if you're not satisfied with Jesus single, you're not going to be satisfied when you're married. I put it this way, my wife is a great wife, but she's a bad God. If I expect her to satisfy the thirst of my soul, she will never be able to do that. And in fact, 
I will put so much pressure on her to meet my deepest needs that I'm going to break our marriage. Because no person can do that. Marriage wasn't designed to meet the needs of your soul. So people get married and they're still thirsty, they're still wanting, and they're like, man, my life is jacked up. What I really need is kids. <laughs> Sorry, didn't... You know, kids will be the answer to life. Kids are great. They won't bring your life meaning. They'll bring it chaos and bills and all kinds of nasty smells and a lot of joy. But they won't bring your life meaning. Please, please listen to me. You were made to find fulfillment in Jesus, not your marriage, not your kids. And if you don't get that, your whole life's going to be disappointing and your family's going to be a wreck because it can't, it can't stand up under that pressure. Don't make your children your God. Well, whoever earns a degree will be thirsty again. I mean, earn a degree, earn several. I, I hope I'm talking to a hundred doctors. But it's not going to give you meaning. Whoever makes a lot of money, whoever takes epic trips, also cool, do it. See the world. But it's not going to make you satisfied. Whoever buys more stuff, and there's actually people, they keep wanting more, and they, they think the next thing, you know, midlife crisis, I need a, a better house, I need a better car, I need a better girl. So they leave their wife and they get a younger girl, and they're still so thirsty. Because none of those things can satisfy. Why do people go after meth? Why do people become alcoholics or go after drugs or sex or porn? I mean, you count on it. Everyone who partakes of porn will be thirsty, will be thirstier yet. The more you go after that thing, that thing starts to own you, but it never satisfies you. It never satisfies you. Now, I joke about quoting the Rolling Stones. If we're going to be more sanctified, this is really the message of Ecclesiastes. Ironically, this low, low, low woman is very like the high, high, high King Solomon who lived a thousand years ahead of her. And he says, I tried to find meaning in life I tried with money, and I built things, and, you know, he had a bunch of concubines, he had all these women, everything he could try to find meaning, and he says, it's all vanity, it's all empty, it's all meaningless. He hated his life. He actually says at one point, I wish I hadn't been born. He's so miserable. You get to the end of the book, he says, the conclusion of the whole matter is this, to love God and keep his commandments, and that's the entirety of man. Life is in knowing God. Not all this stuff. Now, now, here's the irony with the example of the drug, sex, porn, drink. All the rest of that stuff can be fine. If you're satisfied with Jesus, enjoy your marriage to a godly man or woman, and enjoy your kids and have goals, and get degrees, and make money, and be generous, and take epic trips, 
and buy a boat and do whatever you want. And you can enjoy that stuff as long as it's not being used to try to fill a void in your heart. Jesus sees her as thirsty. He has compassion on her. And instead of being so judgy, we actually should relate to her. And everybody you know in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, they're this. It might not be marriage or drugs, but it's something that they're trying to find meaning in life without Jesus. And they're thirsty. And actually, that's the grace of God that makes them thirsty until they find satisfaction in Him. So what did Jesus offer to her? Well, He offers her soul satisfaction. one point, He says, the water I give you will, will spring up inside of you. This is internal. And it'll spring up to eternal life. So he offers her eternal life. That's awesome. Not a bad thing. But more than anything else, what did he offer her? He offered her himself. The one you've been looking for is me. And all these other guys have taken advantage of you. And the truth be known, the other six guys were all thirsty in their own ways. And until they, might, until they meet Jesus, they're going to continue to be thirsty. Over a millennium and a half ago, Augustine said to God in a prayer, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Thee. Another way to say it, there's a God-shaped hole in everybody's soul. And if you try to fill it with something else, you're just going to be thirsty. You're going to want more and more and more. You guys know what the, the sign language for more is? I see a bunch of people doing this. I have a nephew. He has Down syndrome. He is the best dude. He's now 24 years old. And he's... he's I mean, he's a good dude. He loves Jesus. He sings. He's funny. He's smart. We are buds. When he was ah, three, we were at an amusement park, and it had one of those slides where you sit on the slide, and you go like down, down, down. You know, you're just sitting on a mat. And, um, and he indicated he wanted to go. So I'm his uncle. I'm like, hey, man, let's go. So we're walking up, and he's kind of slowly taking the stairs, and he's getting slower and nervous. So I pick him up. I keep walking up the stairs. And every time we turn the next flight of stairs, like he's grabbing me harder. Finally, I put down the mat. I sit down. I'm on the mat. I put him on my lap. And, and he is like a, just a ball of nerves. He is freaking out. I'm like, all right, buddy, you ready? You ready? You want to do this? And he managed to like barely move his neck. And I pushed off and we go, whoom, whoom, whoom. We get down and the rest of the family's there. They're taking pictures and they're all laughing because his eyes are like this big. And I am just waiting for him to just let out a blood curdling scream. And we reach the bottom and he takes a breath and kind of shivers. And then he goes like this. He's like, more, I want more, do it again, do it again, do it again. Well, in, in life, 
the more we go after the wrong things, we're always going to want more. It's never going to satisfy. You know that commercial, Snickers satisfies. How many of you have ever, ever had a Snickers? How many of you have ever had two? Yeah, see, Snickers don't satisfy. <laughs> Jesus satisfies. J.C. Ryle, another English preacher, says there is no heart satisfaction in this world, nowhere, until we believe on Christ. Jesus alone can fill up the empty places of our inward man. Now listen to me. Tonight I preached what I think is, is the most important truth in the Bible. Jesus took your place. He took your sins. He offers you salvation. But this message is so important for you. I'm begging you before you jack up your life with all kinds of disappointments and addictions, and divorces, and, and just, you know, sadness. You find your satisfaction in Jesus, and then live your life where He is all. You know, He's your treasure, and you enjoy the world, but you find your meaning in Jesus. There's mercy when the Bible tells us this. Another guy, Walter Kaiser Jr., I love this. God has actually built us this way. It's not by accident. God has so built man that apart from a personal knowledge of the living God, everything else would be vapid. Vapid, like meaningless, but even boring. Yawn. Ugh. Apart from God, nothing in this world will satisfy you. Ask Solomon. Ask the sad lady, the Samaritan woman. And then imagine the joy when she finally met Jesus that's what I needed. That's what I wanted. That's what I lacked. I love old hymns. You guys know the hymn, Jesus, I am resting, resting. One of the verses talks about the satisfaction of God. Sing with me. Simply trusting Thee, Lord Jesus, I behold Thee as Thou art. And thy love so pure, so changeless, satisfies my heart. Satisfies its deepest longings, meets, supplies its every need, compasses me round with blessings, Thine is love indeed. Jesus, your love satisfies my heart's deepest longings, my heart's every need. It's the message of John 4. It's actually the message of Jeremiah 2.13. God says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out or carved out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Just leave them thirstier still. Tim read for us the other night, Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come and buy and eat. Here's a question. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? It's not money, but why are you wasting your life, your time, your energy for something that will never bring meaning to your soul. 
John chapter 7, Jesus calls out in a public place on the last day of this feast, very symbolic gesture, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's exactly what he said in John 4. This time he says he's actually talking about the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of quotation marks at the end of this sentence and they're all necessary. We can talk about the grammar later. And finally, the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation, some people think it's a scary book, but it's a hopeful book. It's a Jesus-exalting book. And at the end, we have another invitation to come and drink. The Spirit and the Bride, the church, the redeemed. The Spirit and the Bride say, come! Why are you lingering out there? You know, why are you sucking on salt? You'll never be satisfied in this world. Let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price come. I will, I will jump on top of last night's message and beg you again, come. What are you waiting for? Non-Christian, what are you waiting for? Christian, what are you waiting for? Nothing will satisfy your soul but Jesus. I end with these charges to you. Be afraid to succeed at the wrong things. You meet all your goals, you kill it. Doctor so-and-so, big house, big boat, big car. And your soul is so thirsty. Take the warning of this passage. There is more satisfaction than in anything the world offers. There's more satisfaction in Jesus than in sex. There's more satisfaction in Jesus than in money, than in popularity, than in fill in the blank. There's more satisfaction in Jesus. And if you believe it, sin will lose a lot of its appeal. When you can have a juicy steak, why are you eating Cheetos? Bad analogies, because Cheetos are awesome. Why are you eating rice cakes? Okay, I just, you pick your own stupid food, okay? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And Jesus wants you to have a fulfilling, joyful, abundant life with Him, now and then in heaven. Jesus is not trying to ruin your life. Please listen to me. Jesus is not trying to ruin your life. Oh, if I, if I follow Jesus, it's going to be such a drag. I know, I mean, what a drag to only get married once. What a drag to, you know, to, to not have just disappointment. What a drag to not be driven to drink and drugs. What a drag to just find real meaning and joy in Jesus. He came to give you abundant life. The psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd. I'm good. I don't need anything else. Get out of your head that the Christian life is a drag. It's not. Jesus is offering you satisfaction. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. Said it every which way I know how.
Uh, Lord, improve on this message as we meditate on it. I ask you, Lord, to do your work from an entire week, not just from John 4, but from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and conversations and prayers. Change the lives of the people in this room and then through us change the world as we find our satisfaction in Christ. I pray in His name. Amen.